G'day, Luke. <laughs> Hello, Michael. <laughs> All right. Why can we never get that right? I don't know, but it's a bit of a uh, device, isn't it? Just a slight awkward silence at the beginning of our podcast, mm. Luke. Yes. <laughs> Good. Uh, how's life? We have not spoken in a little while. I know you're exceptionally busy. What's been happening in your world? Um, it has been a, yeah, pretty interesting few weeks for me. I think um, I, what did I been well i headed up to splendor which uh many uh, made the news there that was a mm. um challenging circumstances but um you know it's uh um it was <laughs> it was good to see firsthand if you're someone like me at least just uh, what operators are having to deal with across weather pandemic all the issues so and i also out of interest went across the ditch to new zealand to speak at the new zealand hospitality conference um and do a inspection of purple flag which is a district on dominion road which ties in um the eden park stadium actually so that's a bit of the 24-hour economy strategy that i'm looking at at the moment um, more to say on that shortly what about you um mate very similar answer to that which i always give busy um <laughs> i was gonna you, you gotta come up with a different word mate i don't know what to tell you uh oh, yeah. i guess we've had um if you look at Hastings, uh, I think we've had like eight new people join the business over the last month. So it's been a pretty, um, pretty uh, fast-paced little period, which has been good. And that's just due to you know capacity needs and a few sort of things that we're doing, just trying to get ready for the next little period of our growth. So that's been fun, but it's definitely kept me busy. I've been travelling a lot. Um, sampling some nice restaurants in different states when I get the opportunity, which has been great. It feels quite normal on the ground. Um, as far as I've seen, Sydney felt pretty good last time I was there last week. CBD felt almost normal. I don't, I, I'm sure it's not, but um, you, you may have a different opinion on that, but it just felt really good. Some amazing restaurants some, um uh, and so many new openings down there, which is just pretty insane, which particularly when you go into the centre of the city, which is really good to see. Um, anyway, no one really cares what I'm doing. I, our next guest uh, today is Kate Hammett Saraki. Kate and I first had interrupt- interaction sorry, when she was at Maryvale. So she was um, leading their sort of people um, experience team for quite some time. And uh, I guess Kate is an example of someone who gets i could only put it as rave reviews from people that she works with so um i know many people that worked in the organization with her at the time and um it's just amazing the consistency with people with which people just talk about how impressive she is and and how good she was at her job and um how much of a you know a great leader she is and a great colleague so um it's very easy to see that when you're talking to Kate and it's been evident in dealings that I've had with her over the years. But I guess that feedback, if I could pinpoint a reason why I wanted to get her on was, um, you know, she's just a really impressive person. Um, since leaving Maryvale, she started her own business and actually lives not too far away from me on the Sunshine Coast. And we've had um, we've had a fair bit of interaction with some of the clients that she's working with and the clients that we um, work with. So thought it'd be a good opportunity to get her on, have her talk about the things that she's really passionate about. I'm sure they will come through pretty quickly um, once we start a chat with um, Kate. But um, yeah, that's our guest. That's why she's on. And um, let's start the chat. Let's do it. Welcome to the Back of House podcast, Kate. 
How, how are you this fine afternoon? Thank you for having me. I'm fantastic. You're coming to us from uh, from north of the border, I understand, where you've taken a break from a conference on a topic that is close to your heart. <laughs> I am. I'm coming to you from the sunny Gold Coast. Normally, usually a Sunshine Coast girl. So I would say my coast, the Sunshine Coast, is the better coast. But uh, yeah, on this lovely afternoon, I'm coming to you from the Gold Coast where I have just snuck out of an employment law conference and hoping that this will be a much lighter conversation than what I've been doing for the last two days. It's a very, it's a topic of keen interest, employment law, um, for, for many of us. Um, I'll just let that just, just uh, you know, hover. Luke teed this one up and I am keen to understand a bit about you yourself because we haven't met before, um, I don't think, but I, I have done a bit of cyber no, I don't think so. But, uh, Good, I'm glad. Where, where have you come from? What are you doing now? Where are you going? Why don't we start like that? So I am a, a people professional through and through. That's, that's my tagline, I guess. And I always knew that I wanted to be HR professional. I was pretty sure, actually. And, you know, as you'll tell from today, I do love a chat as well. I was pretty lucky to go straight from school to uni, uni to work, none of this career break for me or gap year business. And I've been working in HR, but one of the things that I will tell you is that I hate the term HR. I hate human resources and I much prefer people experience, people operations. Like I'll even take people in culture if I have to, although I don't think that my job is to be completely responsible for culture. So we'll have a little bit of a fight there. But I think HR is just kicking it old school. And I like to think that we're starting to move beyond that seeing people as sheer resources like the other inputs we have to our business, food, beverage, whatever it might be. So people, if you if you don't mind moving forward. And I've been super lucky, I guess, throughout my career to kind of hone my craft of people, um, but also to increasingly, you know, manage larger and larger teams. And then most recently to be able to go out on my own and start my own business, which is Zest People. And I've been really lucky that in my career and probably aligned to my personality and my strengths, I've worked for all these brilliant organisations that are really people-centric, really customer service focused and tend to be leaders in their space. I'm not really a traditional HR professional. I'm not your black and white person. I'm not your sort of paper pusher. And my clients today will tell you that as well about me. And so I, I kind of gravitate to that food, beverage, hospitality, sport, event space throughout my internal HR career, but also now in my consulting practice where that would make up the bulk of my clients, along with now a little bit of digital technology, not-for-profit and that kind of creative space. But, you know, we're all talking about the same sort of challenges, the same sort of problems and the same sort of upsides, which is great. And so in addition to that, I also realised towards the end of my internal career that I actually do a lot of coaching. Um, that's a large bulk of my role in sitting amongst and working with senior executive teams. I, I do coach as part of my general style. And so now in my um, in my own business and my consulting practice, I also do a bit of executive coaching as well, which kind of keeps it fresh and interesting. That sounds great. Do you want to tease out a little bit about your so historical workflow? Like because in, just in terms of our listenership and the um, types of businesses that you work for, like you've you've uh, 
been at Maryvale, but prior to that, maybe just a couple of your other appointments? Yeah, so most recently before starting my own business, I was the Group People Experience Manager for Maryvale for four and a half years, made the move to Sydney to take on that role. And prior to that, I led the HR function as the Manager of Human Resources at Tennis Australia and the Australian Open. So the governing body for the sport in Australia and also the pinnacle event of the Australian Open. But as well, and what maybe some people don't know, is the Australian Open series that is all around Australia in the lead-up to the AO um, and supporting and helping the member associations, so Tennis Queensland, Tennis New South Wales, Tennis Victoria, etc. So made the move to Melbourne for that role. And prior to that, um, was up here on the Sunshine Coast where I was born and raised um, as the principal HR advisor for Oaks Hotels and Resorts, um, which is now sort of more known as Minor International. And I was curious, in, uh, I don't know, this is probably taking us off track straight off the bat, but in terms of sure. the, um, you, <laughs> because hospitality folks, but then you started talking about digital creative and I'm putting words into your mouth now, but the innovation sector maybe, but is that um, happen chance? Is that deliberate? Is that just, you know, out of interest or is it just because is there some sort of convergence somewhere between you know the work you've done and 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 what you're starting to do or am i just trying to read too much into it no you're not reading too much into it it's pretty astute actually i um i have a passion for technology i definitely don't purport to be the best technologist but it's probably a space that i have really embraced throughout my people practice so you know, even with clients that I'm working with now, one of the first go-tos when, when we start talking is, you know, what what is your people technology like? What is the experience that your people are having? And also as a business owner, how, how can we make your life easy? How can we automate things? How, how can we remove processes? How can we make sure we're covering you off, you know, for compliance-wise that we can provide records if we ever need to? And that probably really came to the front when in my role at Maryvale, I was the sponsor for um, my Maryvale, which was at that point one of Maryvale's biggest ever investments into technology. And it was in people technology, it was in back of house technology. And just a huge learning journey that I took through that project and seeing a number of different providers come together to provide an experience to staff that was pretty leading and and that's kind of, I guess, coloured my joy and passion for technology and also a little bit here that my my husband has his own technology business as well. So there's kind of a few things coming together there. We're going to jump into obviously um, what you're doing now, how you're seeing things and and I guess some of your subject matter expertise. But I was interested just in terms of unpacking what you have been doing, what you're doing now. What brought about the decision for you to start your own business and go out on your own. I know you're not by yourself, you're working with other people and you've built a business, but after you know a career working with some really large organisations and, and being on a certain trajectory, not that that sort of changed, but why did you start your own business? Well, you know what? I did the great resignation before the great resignation was a thing. So maybe I'm a trendsetter, but I decided in 2018 after nearly five years in Sydney and working with Maryvale that I wanted to make a move home to the Sunshine Coast, which my mum was absolutely thrilled about. And I knew that kids were on the horizon for me. I now have two little ones, a a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And this was a, you know, I knew that the sort of amazing roles that I'd been doing in Sydney and Melbourne don't necessarily exist here on the Sunshine Coast. But B, 
I needed greater flexibility than I would have ever needed throughout my career in order to be the sort of mom and parent that I am and wanted to be and yet still be able to work on exciting projects and incredible work and in the people space as well. So those are the two drivers for me. But I think also, you know, as a career people professional, I've been so invested in the organisations that I've worked for and a real ambassador for those organisations as I work in them. And it was a mind shift for me to think about how do I take someone else essentially providing me the goalposts and the, the outcomes and deliverables and translate that to now that's my responsibility. Um, and if I'm really honest, I think when I started I didn't have the confidence to do that. Like it was very uncertain for me whether it would be successful or not. But I guess from a, a place of strengths, and I'm a huge advocate for strengths, I'm a strengths-based practitioner, Achiever is one of the strengths that is in my top five and I can talk a little bit more about strengths. But I kind of knew that if I just took the amount of work that I had done in my internal roles and I just applied that same stamina and grit to my own thing surely it couldn't fail it might not have been horribly successful but surely it couldn't fail and and actually you know I haven't been wrong and I've never been busier has that what's the shift in perspective been like I know you've kind of just covered it a little bit but like you know going from that internal mindset where you are focused on one organization and one business and it's something I've experienced which has probably been the thing that I've enjoyed most about the move that I made because instead of focusing on one business, you are looking at multiple and you get to peek under the hood of all these different organisations with different kind of mechanics and mindsets and cultures. Like, what's that experience been like for you? Because you are, obviously, the people focus is so pointy in each business and it can, it, the, the shifts, I mean, the operational shifts between one hospitality and another are not that significant, but I think people's probably where you'd see the most diversity. Is, is that a fair assessment? And, and what's that sort of transition been like for you? I've probably taken the good part about my internal roles and still apply that in my consulting practice, which is having always been a really strong advocate for the businesses that I work for, I now have that for my clients just multiplied. Instead of one, it's multiple. And so, yes, the the inner workings and the dynamics of every business are and or can be incredibly different, but at the same time, I've got a really high bar of the sort of client that I'm prepared to work with. And one of my non-negotiables is that they they really must give a shit, pardon my French, about their people. And I don't mind if they're not doing everything perfectly just yet or if there's room for improvement or if there's some big issues we have to tackle, but they have to really have an appetite to do that. And I don't even mind if there's some areas where we're maybe do not doing exactly the right thing but it has to be by them motivated from wanting to do the best by their people. And so in that respect, when I have that high bar for people that I work with, I then don't mind almost feeling like a part of their furniture. So I'm like their external, internal people team, but I'm kind of just like this one woman show that they have access to. Nice. Mike, you look like you wanted to ask a follow-up question before about your... Um your comment around Achiever as one of the, uh, is that right? Oh, no, like it, uh, I guess we'll probably come on and talk a bit about, as will be inevitable, just about, you know, the sector particularly. And I was corrected in a meeting recently and the, the expression was, it's not a skill shortage, it's a labour shortage, just to kind of see that. But I've been toying a little bit with, um, you know, tr trying to impact the 
positively impact the employment issue for hospitality accommodation sector. And through various sort of forums and things like that, I've there's no one silver bullet. So let's just sort of start with that. There's multiple things and things. And the question is, what totally. what can you do? What can't and who should do what? And and the bit that um I come across was this idea that or the the extent to which the hospitality sector prides itself in innovation and and technology and makes that a sell factor to future uh, employees. And um, the reason I say that is that. Uh, if you look at the startup culture in uh, in the sector, it's actually pretty good. But I don't mm. know. It, a, lot, a lot of the tables I'm at, oftentimes it's you hear the thing of it's unskilled labour. Still, it's like you know why would you you know work in that sector when you you know you could you know it's sort of not perceived still as a great sector to work in. And so I guess what while I was while I was asking that question was that to see if there was a trend really around maybe leveraging up the sector could t- do a better job of talking about innovation as a way of attracting people to it, particularly people who are future focused and a younger audience. If that makes sense, yeah, it makes total sense, and I definitely agree with that comment around it's not a skill shortage; it is a labour shortage, and I have direct exposure with a number of my clients who are doing all the right things um, from a people perspective in terms of they've they've really got a good value proposition for why someone would come and work with them. They've got the right programs and initiatives in place to, to look after those people and to develop and grow those people. From a candidate perspective, they're, you know, they're talking about their job and their organisation the right way and, you know, in an appealing way. They've got good processes when they can connect with people. And yet with all of that good stuff, they may be lucky to get one to three applicants, genuine applicants for a role. And that's not, that's nothing to do with skills. That's to do with sheer numbers and labour that isn't available. And even with doing all the right things is not like that push-pull factor is not pulling to them. So, Yes, A, I, I agree strongly with that labour skills part. but And I think the second part to that is anyone who says that this is an unskilled job or, uh, you know, an, a low-level job, they haven't worked in this space, genuinely worked in this space. Like I, I don't think that you've worked in a kitchen if you say, oh, well, you know, surely we can just get a, a you know, a prep hand, a kitchen prep hand from anywhere. Like... It's just a low-level job, right? Well, if that's the case, you've never worked beside a good kitchen prep hand that you know can literally, like, make the entire difference of the kitchen operations run smoothly, in compliance with food safety, efficiently, um, harmoniously, simply by that one role. You've never worked beside a sommelier that can make the difference between someone's experience as a guest through their knowledge through their service through their expertise like that I just think that is such a uneducated disingenuous comment to say it's not a skill space to work in I do think the space the sector hospitality we have such an important job to do in sharing that story each employer and as an industry sharing what growth what succession what development can look like the same way that you know the education sector shares that 
you know, the year one of your degree looks like this and year two of your degree looks like this and year three of your degree looks like this and then you go on and do some work experience and that's how you get a job. We've got a job to do, I think, in sharing that journey, that progression for people, definitely. And you'd like to think that we could be supported by the government in getting the message out there that this is a genuine career. This is This could bring you, if it's right for you, enjoyment, fulfilment, you know, financial rewards, all the bits of what you think about in grade 10 or 12 of like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? This should be an option that pops into your head if you're this way inclined. And so I think it's a bit of work by everyone. And the last piece of that puzzle is, guess what? That work takes time. Like we, you know, we talk about apprenticeships and traineeships, for example, and the lack of you know, people moving into that space and then therefore moving through into the hospitality sector. But even if we put the focus on that today, those dividends are not going to pay off for us for three to five to seven years in terms of skills. So while we sort that out, we're going to need to bring people in to fill those jobs to help us out with those labour shortages And in the meantime, hopefully pass on some of that amazing knowledge and wisdom and skill and experience to these people who are learning along on the way with the end goal of we're filling that labour shortage, we're improving the skill shortage, and we've got the right number and amount and the right mix of skills that we need to have a really thriving industry. I kind of tend to think and not contradicting anyone, I actually think it's both a labour shortage and a skill shortage. I don't think it has to just be one or the other. Um, you no, kind of no. can feel the real shortage of skills even in people who are already, you know, when you're sitting in a restaurant and you can just, you can feel it. I think we've said it a few times on this podcast, but the way that people are approaching tables, how they're clearing tables, how they're dropping food, the level of confidence that they're, you know, illustrating, it's it's in every environment in Australia, I would suggest, from a hospitality perspective at the moment. So I think... Um, yeah, the more time businesses can spend investing into the skills um, or upskilling their staff, it's not going to solve the labour shortage, but it's, both need to happen concurrently. I couldn't agree with more with you in terms of taking an industry-wide approach to it because otherwise it's just, you know, one out. It just won't be effective enough to get the numbers that we need coming through the door. Spit flow, grip shows, peep the recital. Skills, tap. You feel it when we drop those hot beats. Stop foes, killing shit, we got those. Skills, hits. The music that the street loves. Each thug is now repping this with deep love. Skills, gangstar, dueling again, ruling again. Watch as we do it again. In terms of the current landscape as you're seeing it, I mean, that's that's one issue. What else are you seeing in terms of, and I know we had a quite a frustrated conversation about this on the phone maybe um, four weeks ago or something, but um, what other characteristics have you seen of the current landscape that are sort of coming to the fore? At the risk of sounding like a broken record, like COVID really has changed the dynamic in what I'm seeing from a people focus and a couple of things that, you know, I'm seeing in that kind of, I I don't know if we can call it a post-COVID world because I don't think we are in a post-COVID world yet, but in that that transition through everything we've all been through collectively for the last two and a bit years, I'm seeing a greater focus on mental health and well-being, like undoubtedly. I'm seeing that the great resignation that COVID caused a lot of people to take stock of what was important in their life and to care at a greater level or 
change their priorities and the flow on from that. And I also think as a kind of follow on to that, you know, when COVID first hit, I expected that given my role in the people space, I would be quieter than ever. You know, who's who's going to need what I do? But interestingly, and and possibly, you know, allowed or propped up a little bit by JobKeeper, most of my clients who otherwise couldn't operate like normal or were operating in a very different capacity to normal actually really smartly decided to turn their their thoughts to some of those kind of back of house matters that maybe they hadn't had the time to focus on previously. So things like, I mean, the real hygiene bits like contracts, policies, you know, forms and all of that sort of, you know, getting our house in order, our backyard in order. But then extending from that, you know, are we really clear with people on what their jobs are and what their job profiles are? Are we really clear on, you know, one of the big pieces of work I often do with clients is their talent journey map. So in what does a candidate experience? What are we committing to as an employer in terms of the way that people should go from not even interested or knowing about our organisation to working for us, having passed their probationary period and continuing to grow and develop with us. Like let's set some some points, not that we're absolutely committed to those, but that we're really clear on what that looks like done well or done best. And so pieces of work around that along with training programs and, and being able to, you know, coach key members of their teams or leaders in their teams was what kept me incredibly busy and now continues into this kind of you know, post-COVID world, evolving world where good employers are realising, gosh, I've really got to, I've got to deliver an experience for people that makes them, even though they have taken stock of their life and what's important and their priorities, that makes them want to stay with me instead of do something else. And I've got to think about in that experience how I can support people's health and well-being and in particular their mental health and so I think that the operators that are doing that really well are still experiencing some pain points and some challenges but to a far lesser degree than others that haven't even turned their minds to that or maybe are just now turning their minds to that but have lost that kind of two years that others have had to start to catch up on some of those pieces. You mentioned the experience topic a number of times there in terms of some real specifics around you know how i guess the key hit points for delivering a positive experience for a staff member can you share a couple of examples of some i guess really effective steps that you might put in that experience process yeah totally and i think the first thing about it is that to be done well it can't be cookie cutter like there's no I can't give you one answer right now that is like, if everyone just does this, that's that's the right thing to do. That's the best practice. I think the right thing to do is really sit down and think about your business and what you want to stand for, what you want to be about, what, you know, what does the, the guest experience? And then as a result, what do you need to craft in order to make sure your employees, your people, your staff have the experience that can reflect what you want to go out publicly. I, I think one of the, the key pieces of work, one of the key projects or workshops I almost exclusively do with every new client who's never done this before, and 
it's not that popular to do this. Like it's not that I have a lot of people coming to me saying, oh, we've already done that piece of work, is to define our why or our purpose. So to really clearly articulate what gets our people out of bed every day. Like why? Why work for us? Why why do this job? And and that is a, a really specific piece of work. And then flowing from that is our values. What are our values? And flowing from that is if people are working to our behavior our values, if people are living and breathing our values, what do the behaviors or the real tangibles look like that are the the physical depiction of those values? And so I think if that's the only thing that someone takes away from this chat today is let's be really clear on what our North Star is, what our, our why is, our purpose statement. Some people might, you know, old school know it as like mission or vision. What, it doesn't matter what the language is, I think, you use for it. What are our values? What do we stand for? And what do they look like in practice or in action? I think that's the start to the experience piece because once you've got that, you can align everything behind that. Okay, so if we know what our what, what our why is, why are we here to do, what are we here to do? And it's so old school, but I just can't recommend enough Simon Sinek's, like it starts with why. I know it's very kind of externally marketing, branding sort of focused, but it has application to the people space, absolutely. And then, you know, the why, the, the how, what becomes the values, the behaviours. If you've got that, then it's so easy to go, well, then, how do we recruit people? How do we select people? How do we train people? Who do we challenge because they're not aligned to what we want to be about? How do we reward? How do we succession plan people through? Or literally the entire employment life cycle becomes really clear. And I think going back to the values piece, because that's something I'm super passionate about, if you can't tell, is I have clients that have again, not cookie cutter, incredibly personalised, individualised values that apply to them. Um, so things like one of my clients is huge on sustainability and um, they, in action, they do all sorts of crazy stuff. Like one of their sites is completely off the grid, um, is you know not powered by anything that runs to it. They care about their water waste, their their recycling, their food waste, every part of the sustainability piece is embedded into their business, driven by their value of sustainability. And so I think, you know, if that's the only takeaway from this conversation, that is, a, that's a big tick for me. Can I ask you one more follow-up on that? Because I think sometimes when this is suggested to businesses, their heads start spinning because they just don't know where to start. Like it can seem quite um, either, I don't, know, I don't know how to put it, but... It's strategic. It is. And it's also so open to interpretation in terms of how you actually define a why that it can be really hard to just start the process. So, I mean, just in really practical terms, how would you start that process or what's an easy way to distill everyone's thoughts and, and sort of get going on a track to figuring that out? Simple answer for me, human-centred design or design thinking. So every workshop that I ever run in this space, whether it's you know, why values behaviours, uses human-centred design. So a really simple model that is human-centred design is it starts with empathising. So putting yourself in the shoes of the people. And, and that's not the shoes of the business owner. 
um, or the general manager or the executive chef. It's the people who are involved in the in the business. And there's a process for doing that. Next step, define. Define the problem statement here that we're here to do. And it's usually what is our why? What are our values? What do our values look like in action because they're our behaviours? So empathise, define, ideate. But the process where you throw out 40 million post-it notes that have all of these ideas around that and then moving from ideation into prototyping. So starting to sort those big picture, blue sky, you know, sky's the limit post-it notes, if you like, into some sort of buckets or something that makes sense or it's starting to get a bit logical. And then the last step of human-centred design or design thinking being test. So I'm a huge fan of test something out. Don't assume that we're going to get to the end of this workshop and it's perfectly done and we don't need to consult with anyone else, like just tick it, like we did that workshop, done the work with Kate, great, we're done. No, test it in with people, test it in with the business, check for understanding and feel free to to iterate this. Like this is not a set and forget piece of work. Like our organisations are living, breathing things and so we should have living, breathing why statements or values that, that adapt with us as we, as we go. Like, sure, they should be a guiding light, but I think being open to say to your people, hey, we tested this out and this kind of didn't work in practice, so we're, 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 we're just going to change it because it doesn't work for us and, and we're not so stuck or set in our ways or egotistical about the work that we did that we can't say yeah this didn't really land so we're just going to change it but that failing forward failing fast you know I, I think that's another kind of recommendation and I like that the design thinking process really supports that because it allows you to say hey we're just we're just doing a bit of an experiment here and if it lands brilliant and if we need to tweak or iterate as a result of this experiment, then we, then we will. And we'll come back to you. How do you manage it? when you may be operating or sorry undertaking this task in an organization that has that is established that has already perhaps a culture in place or individuals within a team that aren't necessarily willing to bend or um, yeah. come on the journey like what's your best advice there as to how to navigate that because that, that can be quite um totally. know, um that happens a lot, sorry, in, in the sector specifically and probably in any sector, to be honest. So how do you bring people yeah. on the, the journey with you? Yeah, I, I think most of the businesses that I start working with and, and work on this process around, you know, defining their why, their values, their behaviours, they're already established. So, you know, whether they can put their finger on it or not, of course there is a culture in those businesses. And so for me, this process is more aspirational Let's not think about necessarily what we are today because there might be some bits we need to work on there. Let's think about what we want to be and what good looks like and where we're moving towards. And then once we've defined that, that then allows us to go back and look at, okay, well, what's the gap between where we want to be and where we are today? And then that allows us to make a really clear strategy to say, well, if this is the gap, maybe it's this person 
this team, this particular practice that we do that doesn't align to these new values or these now defined values, then that's where we start the work. We start the work on removing or changing that process, you know, removing or changing that team, removing or changing that person. And that could be a simple task or a really complex task. But I, I don't think that the work is beneficial if it's done as a reflection of where we are today because then it's almost, it's baked in that it's imperfect work. You know, it's, it's flawed and I, I don't think that's going to lead to success. Like, I guess this is probably the same question asked a different way. I, I, I guess I'm just thinking through, you know, the pandemic and you referred early in the podcast, are we, you know, that thing, are, are we through it or not? And I, I guess through the lens at which I look at it, it's, it's whether or not we're through the pandemic, we're, we're definitely not in back to a regular trading period or pattern. Um, and, and that could be a function of just business operations, but I think there's also an argument that it's partly a function of um, consumer habits yet have not yet landed in context of, you know, all the things being, you know, weather events and war and like this thing. So I, I guess, um, do you see like the um, subject matter that we're talking about, the why piece and that accelerate, like are more businesses kind of trying to grapple with this now um, than before? Because there, there, there is a bit of a um, crossroads we've come to in certain instances and you know like because it is a time of questioning i guess and to your point like it, it's um it could be the time to be the most ambitious with the aspirational why as opposed to the legacy why if that makes sense and i don't yeah i think it's a really interesting kind of um way of thinking about you know business response beyond people but i think yes people are really having to adapt that service model in for a lot of my clients that's something i'm seeing with just this week i've been working on um, a client who is changing their ordering technology so you know we've all been to establishments where you you scan the qr code and the menu pops up and you order from the menu and you know it's quite it would be quite easy from an operational perspective to just you know pop that technology in like it's it's kind of pretty easy to set up and, and you know integrate into the business what this business is doing that I'm really proud of and really excited for them is they're saying, okay, rather than just pop the technology in and then just, you know, use our existing staff base and just get them to, you know, deliver the food, deliver the drinks, because that's what the current job is. And in a lot of ways in the new model, that's what their job is. Let's like actually rethink this entire role and let's up its importance. Let's, let's really dial up the knowledge they need to have of the food, the knowledge they need to have of the drinks, the engagement they have with guests, because they don't have to do that engagement of the ordering piece and the payment piece. Let's really dial up the engagement they have when, you know, they don't just come to the table and say, who ordered the steak? That they actually say, here I've got this type of dish, you know, and that I know it's it, this one's the medium well, whereas the next one I'm about to bring is the rare. All of that piece is what we're designing around this now ambassador role. This is not a runner. This is not a food runner. This is a real ambassador for where are the bathrooms, you know, what artist is playing, what's the weather like, is the surf good, you know, what is all of our menu and what would I recommend, you know, what drink goes with what. And that is actually more of a performer than just the the view of this role being, oh, well, let's just get anyone from 
out of school, out of uni, backpacker, someone on a student visa, because, you know, whatever, anyone can run food. And so we're really dialing up the the importance of that role, the articulation of that role, the training that comes with that role, and the pay that can come with that role when someone's able to really tick off those boxes and expectations. So that's just one example of how technology post-COVID, you know, we want to remove as much of that um, engagement for social distancing reasons, safety reasons, guest expectation reasons. But here we are with the hospitality industry. If we can't bring that to the engagement, then, you know, like what are we here to do? Is everything we're doing just back of house? So I like that those good operators are really thinking through the implementation of technology and if we're removing one particular function, which is great and efficient and, and to a guest preference, how can we make sure we have an opportunity to really dial up another area of engagement so that people leave, guests leave, feeling like, wow, that was what service? That's great. <laughs> I was going to ask, and tell me if this is a stupid question or not, Kate, but is there any value in us going back and discerning the difference between creating culture and um, defining the why and the behaviours? Or do you think they're sort of closely linked enough that we wouldn't need to talk about culture? Because it's just so broad saying, how do we create a great culture? But, like, is there value in talking about that, do you think? Well, I think one of the things is like, interesting as we think about like, the, the why values behaviours piece is then like the living in action part of that. Like what does it look like in real life? And I, I often love when I, thankfully not too many of the clients that I'm working with now, but I love when people make those statements like people are our most important asset. You know, our people are, you know, they're the whole reason our business exists. And I'm like, amazing, that's great. We're going to get along really well then. <laughs> And then I watch the way they, for example, navigate uh, an, a vacant role that they're advertising for. And I'm like, cool, that, so that role's been out and I can see now that you've got, you know, 10 applicants in there. Um, which ones of those have you called and which ones have you let know that um, they're not successful? Oh, I haven't had time to do that yet. I've been so busy with this, that, and the other. I'm like, hang on, I thought people were your most important asset. I thought people were the most important part of your business. So I'm not seeing the the inaction aligned to the values because if people really are the most important thing, and look, I understand. I run a business myself. I know stuff gets in the way. I know things pop up that are unexpected or that seem like fires to fight. But if people really are the most important, then the most important thing you can do every day is have a look at that vacancy, is go in and have a look at the applicants that you want to speak to and to pick up the phone and speak to them now, today, this hour, not tomorrow, not the next day, not in a week's time, not when the job closes in three weeks' time because in three weeks' time all of those people are gone. They've, gone, they've picked up other roles and even though they were excited about yours, maybe, hopefully, that's why they applied, they've moved on. And so values in action like having alignment to what you say and what you do is really, really important. And that's just the example I give around the, the speed and the candidate and the vacancy is simply, you know, watch what you say because people will notice what, whether what you say is in alignment with your behaviour. And it might be uncomfortable to say, well, particular vacancies aren't our biggest priority. Like that's just, it's life. We're okay with that. 
and I would prefer you say that and be honest and authentic and genuine about it than to say there's nothing more important in my day but then the action doesn't, you know, translate. And practically, I absolutely see that the the fast movement with anything people is usually what the successful operators do. So whether that's fast moving on talent, fast moving on issues, if you've got someone in your business who nobody likes to work with, is delivering poor service, is always late for shift, is not presenting well, is is doing anything that is in an alignment with your values, whether you've articulated them or not, moving fast to address that problem. And I'm not suggesting like just sack them without notice, support person, proper process or anything like that, because that's where, you know, I'm going to come in and help you out. But moving fast to at least have the conversation, address the behaviour, hopefully rectify it and move forward instead of putting off something because it's uncomfortable or it's difficult or it's awkward. I think that's an incredibly important space where, again, if you if you take nothing else out of this chat, moving fast on people issues to either resolve them or improve them is, like, super important. I think um, the topic of authenticity and consistency is pretty prevalent at the moment. I think people see through or identify a lack of authenticity pretty quickly, um, particularly in those more junior roles, if you're talking casual workforce or even sort of lower level managers in terms of responsibility, not nothing else. But uh, I couldn't agree more in terms of um, living and breathing what you actually say you, you, you will stand by and what you'll accept is so critical at this point because the reality of it is that if someone doesn't believe in what you're saying, they'll walk out the front door and get another job somewhere else in, you know, a matter of minutes in this market, which is um, fantastic. Um, I wanted to ask you about strength. I know we don't have too much time left because we've got a bit of a few other questions to follow, but can you talk us through strength-based leadership? Because I know that's something that you're really passionate about and, and I guess how that's applied in your world. I use a tool which is Gallup, Gallup's tool, Clifton Strength, Strengths Assessment, which is essentially a positive psychology tool which has 34 strengths and a a really quick online assessment that you do for fairly low cost which will tell you, depending on the report that you want, anywhere from your 1 to 34 or your 1 to 5 top 5 strengths. And there's no bad strength, there's no wrong strength and so I love using that tool because it's a brilliant coaching tool to have people understand those strengths it comes with a really comprehensive report about your strengths and then to be able to work with leaders you know whether they're the general manager or owner of the business right through to you know some of my coaching clients are journalists scientists software engineers chefs sommeliers people and culture professionals like you name it I, I coach across any occupation, any industry, any level, but to be able to work with people on their strengths and to help them, you know, the simple model of name it, claim it, aim it. So, you know, I I just mentioned at the the start of this chat, you know, one of my strengths and one of my achiever, which is my number four, um, so I can name it, I claim it because trust me, it is totally me and anyone who knows me or works with me will be able to tell you some examples of what my achiever looks like. But I aim it, importantly. So I think about how my achiever goes when done well. It 
drives me, it moves me forward, it gets stuff done, it ticks off the to-do list. But also the achiever can sometimes get a little bit out of control as well and needs to be sort of managed and sometimes kept in a box and um, kind of matured instead of just in its raw format. So the same way that I apply that to myself, I apply that as a coach with my coaching clients working through that it's such a mindset shift that many of us and certainly me earlier on in my career We spend all this time thinking about the things that we're bad at, thinking about the things we've been given constructive feedback on or our areas for development or even our weaknesses. And the interesting thing is that the research tells us that working on those things doesn't get us the best results, whereas working on the things that we've already got in the tool belt, we've all, they already come naturally and inherently and they're, they're talents of ours that exist that's how we massively increase our performance. And so I love working with that tool because I love generally people do their assessment, the top five really resonate with them. I've had feedback like, oh my gosh, it's like someone's inside my head or like this is like an autobiography of my life. So it really resonates. But then being able to help people through that, okay, well now let's help you to spot it when it's, when it's being used to kind of claim it and then to aim it and harness it and use the really good mature side of it as opposed to, you know, out of control. And so I often talk about my my top strength, my number one strength is activator. It's an influencing strength. The best um, description of that strength is like I thrive on moving forward. Like I don't wait for all the lights to be green. I just get to the next green light and the next green light after that brilliant strength i'm the person that will get things started in a team like let's just do it what's the worst that could happen i need to be mindful you know thinking back to my time managing a team of 23 people in the people experience team at Maryvale. sometimes activators already running towards the green light and the team is back here and i've forgotten that they need to know what's the due date who's involved in this project why are we doing this and a bunch of other information that Activator doesn't really care about, um, but their strengths do. So blessings and curses, upsides and downsides, but such a, a brilliant tool for thinking about the stuff that you already have in your tool belt that's already there, that already feels good for you to use, that you can really, really improve your performance if you just bring those things to the front as opposed to like that bottom feeding stuff because those strengths that are 30, 34, you know, 29, they're not bad strengths, but they're going to be real hard for you to use. Very comprehensive answer. And you're, I'm chuckling because I, I'm just trying to work out. I, I've done that. We're about to do it again. I've, I'm in a new role, so I'm taking the team through the Gallup strength thing. Yes. Shortly. So I want to, I'm going to do a compare and see if they've changed. I, I did it about 10 years ago. Hey, um, when we, I want to ask another question. You referenced this right at the beginning, actually. And, um, and it was that people and culture piece. And you were just mentioning the, uh, whose responsibility is it? And like, you know, uh, on the culture piece, like what, can we can we get the answer to that particular question before we do our final five? The answer is really simple. I think everyone's responsible for culture because everyone contributes to culture. Every, every word you use in the workplace or, or with your workmates, every action you take, every decision you make, all of that is culture. Like the sum total of that is culture. And so I think anyone who has the view that, we set the culture at the top. We, you know, we define our why, we define our values, we define our behaviours. That's a reflection of our culture. And then we push it down. Like we just 
tell people this is how it's going to be if you're going to work here and this is what you do do and this is what you don't do, that is not going to work. And so culture should be this kind of big cycle. Yes, you should still do those pieces of work, but you should be mindful that, you know, you need to make sure that everyone and, you know, bottom up, top down, round and round, it doesn't matter, but everyone needs to be part of that and in alignment to that. The best businesses I've seen is where anyone at any level can say to a, a colleague, someone more senior than them, someone in a different department to them, hey, that's not, we don't do things like that around here. Well, that's not how we operate. Well, don't do that again. Um, that to me is a really genuine, authentic culture where you know you're getting something right when anyone at any level in any role at any point in their tenure is able to go, I know what, what is right and what is wrong and how we do things around here, what our standards are, and I'm not going to bystand and actively let something happen that I know is not what we're about. And, and I feel comfortable in the fact that the business has been really clear with me about what that is, that I can, I should speak up, I must speak up to make sure that people are aware of that, to kind of continually iterate and tweak that so yeah i everyone is responsible for culture culture is not a department culture is not a team culture is not a person or a role culture is literally everything that happens in the business and that's why i think really thinking about each of the points where your people experience a moment that to them might matter or be of huge significance and really nailing each of those little moments super important I was just going to say, side note, Mike, when you redo your strengths, Gallup has a 0.74 test retest reliability. So 74% chance that you get the same strengths in the same order, but Gallup says it's okay to redo your strengths every seven plus years or after significant life events like changing jobs, um, any of those things that are super stresses life changes, divorces, having kids, moving states, like any of those things, because likely your strengths order and reorder by what's kind of coming to the fore. So I'm going to follow up with you on that and, and ask you how you went. Well, it's, it's, I, I feel quite bad sometimes on this podcast because, uh, I just get this great coaching from guests basically. And I've made, I've made notes to come back and listen to this on the name, aim. And what was the other one? I can't, you just, you just told Name, name, claim. So name it, claim it, aim it. Because I haven't had that advice before, so I, I, this is a, a repeat listen. Twenty uh, third September, check in. You give the strength to me, a strength I never had. I was a mess, you see. I lost the plot so bad. You dragged me up and out, out of the darkest place. There's not a single doubt when I can see your face. All right, let's go to the uh, let's go to the final five, and uh, we've invited these to you in advance, and I'm excited about the answers we're about to get. So, the first is in the musical genre: favorite artist or album. Look, I'm a bit cringe in this space. I'm pretty eclectic when it comes to to music and artists, but. I'm a child of the 80s and 80s hits are always go-tos for me in order to lift my mood. Um, full disclosure, my son, my three-year-old son's current favourite song is Men at Work, Land Down Under. <laughs> and so that is a car staple karaoke song. 
I think it is only because of the Vegemite sandwich reference. <laughs> that was the, that's got to be one of the longest uh, preambles to that answer, but I like it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, all right. So, uh, well, yes, yeah, next one. Um, book or podcast that you would recommend? Okay. I can't keep it short, right? Input is my number five strength. I'm a collector of information. So, lots. Books, the number one I would recommend is um, Patty McCord, who is the former first chief talent officer of Netflix, has a book called Powerful. Any of the HR people, geeks and nerds out there are going to love it. And also all my podcast recommendations are pretty people-y. I love Esther Perel's How's Work as an executive coach, really good. I love um, How I Work, Amantha Imba, and I love ABC's This Working Life. All, all, all sound wonderful recommendations and thank you. Um, your favourite drink? Look, I've been burning the candle at both ends, so it's got to be coffee, but I'm always partial to a cheeky glass of rosé. Next question, where's your favourite venue right now? Where do you like going out for uh, dinner, drinks, whatever it might be? So here on the Sunshine Coast, I love the Spirit House. We got married there, incredible food. Um, in Brisbane, I love Leonard's and Dawn, the, um, so Leonard's restaurant, Dawn, the bar out the back. In Melbourne, I love Hazel. And in Sydney, I, I just have too many favourites from my time at Maryvale, but a bit of a wild card. I love Hinchcliffe House, Lana. It's absolutely gorgeous. Yes, uh, it is becoming a very popular choice, is old Hinchcliffe House. Beautiful. I had lunch at Leonard's the other day, actually, in Brisbane for the first time, and it was very, very good. Very good. Mm. I must say um, I have the privilege of getting a bit of uh, behind-the-scenes access today and with a bit of a Maryvale theme, the, uh, I was at the new stadium um, mm. last night on a tour. So um, very exciting, very exciting that is. that uh, it's, They've done an amazing job in terms of the overall thing. So um, we'll look forward so cool. to enjoying it in, in full swing. And last but not least, the biggest inspiration to you. Yeah, this is a hard one, but I think, for me, really simple, anyone running and growing a successful business, I think anyone who displays like amazing entrepreneurship and creativity, so many amazing operators who like really bank on their passion and their idea and their ability to execute it, that's, that's inspiring to me. On that very positive note, to... Very inspiring people on this podcast, yourself and Luke, like with both your businesses uh, doing a wonderful job um, helping the sector uh, through challenging times. So just like to thank you for joining us on the Back of House podcast, Kate. Thank you. Such a pleasure to, to be here. Thank you. 